Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Good morning. My name is David, one of the pastors. For those of you who don't know me, and uh, just glad you guys are here. Glad that you're watching online with us today. Um, man, I'm honored to get to preach this text for real. It's it's a lot going on there. If you didn't pick up on that, just as Justice read it, there's a lot there. And, and really, if we're just going to be honest, it's kind of like, what the heck just got said? I don't know. We're talking about people being still in the loins of their ancestors and ties to, to Levi, and, and it's just a lot. Kelzedek, like we can't even pronounce the name half the time. Like it's hard. It's like it's a really hard um, text to understand. But I need to catch you up just briefly for Hebrews, like where we've been, so that I can give you a better context for what the heck is being talked about here. And so there's like there's these major themes that you've seen that we've really hit on throughout Hebrews in the first six chapters. And, and one of the big ones is this: is the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to Jesus. It is pointing to Jesus. It is about Jesus. Like every story, every person, everything, all the prophecies, laws, festivals, practices, customs, everything that they were doing was to give the Jewish people, God's chosen people, a foreshadowing of who Jesus was and is and always will be and what he was going to do on the cross and that he would rise again for their salvation. Like he was the Messiah that they were waiting for. It's all pointing to him. And so then the author of Hebrews, he had to unpack some other stuff to keep them on track because these believers, these people who are professing Christians were wanting to go back to their Jewish roots. They were wanting to go back and they had problems of believing that angels were even superior. And so the author again, hey, angels aren't it. Like Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than your, your patriarchs of like Abraham and, and, and Moses and everyone else. Like he's, he's better. Don't, don't look to them for your faith. Don't look to, for, to them for anything else. Just look at Jesus. Like he's it. Because why? And one of the other themes is this, is that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Like they were cool with this idea of maybe of him being Savior but not being Lord. Maybe they were okay with him being Lord, but not Savior. They were wrestling with that. They didn't know what to do with that. That's something I think that we really have to tend to gravitate to, towards in our own culture, especially for those of us who are like, probably like over 30. Like if you grew up in, like in the 80s or 90s and you went to church somewhere and they would do this, they'd be like, hey, you don't want to go to hell, right? Like you're in a VBS or a Sunday school and no one wants to go to hell, especially a little kid. I could talk. I could go back there. We could talk all those kids into praying a prayer. Um, but then you'd be like, I don't want to go to hell. Well, then everyone bow their heads and close their eyes and repeat this prayer after me. And we would, you know, repeat this prayer, this generic prayer that's not in the Bible, the, the sinner's prayer. And then we'd, if you pray that prayer, raise your hand. And, of course, you know, most of us raised our hand at some point. And the problem was is that if you grew up like I did, you probably didn't get taught much about Jesus being your Lord, just that he was your Savior. And you can just go and go about doing whatever you wanted to do. And that's what they were trying to gravitate towards. They didn't, like Mark referenced and Corey's talked about, I've talked about Jeff when he's led worship. Like, we have to see Jesus down low and Jesus up high. Like, that was, that's one of the big themes here, that he's Lord and Savior. 
He cannot just be one or the other. And he even says to people in the, in the New Testament, he's like, they're calling him Lord. And he's like, why do you call me Lord? If I was Lord, you'd do what I said. And yet we drift so far from that. Because, well, essentially we don't believe that he is better. And we're going to talk about that for sure. But also the reason why we drift and one of the themes that we see in this is that we need to be growing in our faith. But yet, just like these people here that's being written to, we grow, we grow dull of hearing. We, 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 we're still on spiritual milk, and we should be eating like these full five-course meals of spiritual food. We should be taking it all in to be fully nourished and growing and, and being sanctified, as Mark talked about as he led worship. Like we, need, we need that, yet we're sometimes like them, and we just stay there. We see that theme, and so it's, it's hard to not fall away when you're not being fed properly because you're not taking in the things of God that you should be taking in. And so then, ultimately, it's that Jesus is better. That's the theme. So far, through six chapters, Jesus is better. That's for simplicity's sake. We could just say, that is it. That is what Hebrews is about, is like, don't go back to what you did. Just trust that Jesus is better and that all the persecution, all the hard things that you're facing, it's going to be okay. Like, even if it doesn't turn out okay in this life, it's going to be okay in eternity. Jesus is better. And he's got you, and he's waiting for you. He's got it all locked up. It's taken care of. That's what he was trying to get the point to be in chapter 7. And we're going to unpack all that. But I have to ask you, like, do you believe that Jesus is better? Do you truly believe that? Like, sitting here today, can you say, yes, I believe Jesus is better? And it's so cliche, right? Like, we say that. You would expect us to say it at the church. If we didn't think that Jesus is better, then why are we here? And why are you even listening to us? It would be silly, and we should just all go home. And if we really want to examine, do we believe that Jesus is better, then, like, the best way to do that would be, like, just bring some files with you to church next week of your bank statements, your calendar, your search history. We'll We'll see. Well, I'm not pointing the finger. I'm talking to myself as well. Like, I felt, like, convicted of this as I, as I prepared this week. Like, dang, like, do I believe that? Do I believe that Jesus is better? Like, do I, like, look at my calendar. Like, I'm just always running everywhere. And, like, a lot of it doesn't have to do with Jesus. And then I'm like, well, I got to be on mission while I'm there. And, and I, I want to be. And I try to be. But sometimes, like, I'm tired, though. I just, just get the kids the next practice, right? So do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus is better than everything else. The author of Hebrews, he desired so much to show this group of people to not go back because whatever they're dealing with, whatever they're facing, which is way different than the stuff that we're facing, right? Like we don't, we're not being murdered for our faith. We're not being thrown in jail for our faith. Like that's not what we're facing. Like we're dealing with this different. It's different, but yet we get drawn to believe that other things are better than Jesus, and so often we'll drift right to it, like, oh, yeah, that, that'll feel good. Like, if I can just do that, like, if I, if I just got here, like, that would be better. I mean, I, th- I think about it, like, for myself. I think my, I was thinking about this last night as I was, we got home late and we went to the movies and I got home, I'm shaving my head. So, like, Jeff, he always talks about, like, thinks about when he's in the shower. So I'm, in, I'm shaving my head. So this is, this is where your pastors get, like, their revelations from God. God speaks to us in the bathroom. And so I'm shaving my head and I'm just, like, thinking, like, man, I think the, the thing that I gravitate towards to think that is better than Jesus is looking back at my failures. If I would have just done this better, 
as a teenager, if I would be a better husband, if I'd be a, a better father, if I'd have done this differently, then my life would look better. It would be more together. I would have, I'd be able to just feel more confident in who I am because of what I would have done differently. And essentially, that's saying that I could take care of all that and tidy it all up, and it would look way better and be nice and clean, and then that would be why I could present myself better because of all that. And what I'm saying is that I could do it better than Jesus. And he takes my story, and he takes your story, and he's like, no, I've got it. Yeah, you mess up and you sin, but I've got it. Like, I'm still better. You didn't need to fix that. What did Mark say? Like, he, he, Jesus loved us while we were still sinners, not when we got all our stuff together. And so I don't know, personally, like, I could sit here and give you all these illustrations of things you might think are better than Jesus, but essentially you know. Like, when I said your bank statements and your calendar and your search history, you're like, oh, dang it. Yeah, that, that's right, that, that's there. But when we look at a text like this, I have to give you background. Because if I just say that Jesus is better, you're like, all right, well, like, how do I know that? Like, what was, how, do, how does this, like, matter for me? Like, this text here, how is that pointing me to it? And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk you through the Old Testament to the Levitical priesthood. Like, I can't give you the, every detail, but we're going to go pretty fast. So you're just going to have to stick with me. All right, so if you have church background, you're going to know a lot of this, and we're going to skip a ton of details. So the world is formless, right? Holy Spirit's hovering over the waters. God speaks everything into existence. Six days of creation. He rests on the seventh day. He thinks everything is good, that he's, he's not thinking like, ooh, I think it's good. Like, he knows it's good. He says, this is good. And what happens? Sin creeps in. Adam and Eve do what they were told not to do. They eat of what they were not supposed to eat. They wanted to have this knowledge of good and evil. Well, sin's in the world, and we know how that goes. It doesn't go well. They have some kids. They have Cain, and they have Abel. Well, Cain decides he's going to kill Abel. Okay? Like, I, there's details. Go read it, and it's in Genesis. And what happens then is after he kills Abel, God comes and talks to him. I'm not minimizing like this. It's not like a talk like you scold your kid, like, hey, you shouldn't have like, taken the toy from your, from your brother or sister. Like, this is like a, like there's some ramifications come with this murder. He's kind of cast out to go do his thing. There's a mark on him, like no one's supposed to kill him. There's all this. And so what happens then is Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And from that, then, the whole world starts to populate. But as the world populates and there's more and more people, guess what else populates and there's more of? Anyone got an idea? Sin. Yep, sin. It's everywhere. Like, it's just taken over. And at this point, God regrets that he even made mankind. He's like, what the heck? Like, I'm just going to wipe them out. But yet he sees Noah, and he sees him, and he's like, he's righteous. I'm going to save Noah and his family, his kids, their wives, and I'm going to save two of every kind of every animal, right? And so we don't know how all that works, like, but God brings them all together on this big giant boat that we call an ark that's made of what kind of wood, anybody? Go for some of you guys are tracking with me. All right, so he builds this giant ark, and they're all on there. They got food. They're doing all their deals. Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's all going on. And they get off the ark. The water has went away. And God makes a covenant with Noah. It's the first covenant in the Bible. It's the Noahic covenant with Noah. And that, he's ne that God's never going to flood the earth like that again. He gives the rainbow as a symbol to solidify that. And that's what's going on. But as population starts to grow, sin starts to grow again. So 
God does stuff. There's the, the Tower of Babel, and there's, there's things taking place. But then God calls this man Abram. He calls him up out of his land and tells him, hey, I'm going to bless all the families of the world through you. And so I need you to go and go do this. And so there's all these things that start to take place. And Abram is married to a, a woman named Sarah. And, and as he goes, he, I mean, he, he's messed up. And it's so interesting that God uses someone as messed up as him. Like he prostitutes out his wife to try to keep them both safe. Like, hey, you can, don't tell him. Just say you're my sister. You know, it's like a half-truth because, like, there wasn't a whole bunch of people, I guess, to choose from yet. And so she was, like, technically, like, sort of his sister. But it's messed up. And, and so he goes out, and he takes his nephew Lot with him and as he's going. Well, as they're out there, Lot realizes there's not enough land. I'm going to go over here and with my livestock and my farm, and I'm going to do this stuff. And he goes to a bad area. Things go really bad. So what does Abram do? He goes in and he rescues Lot. He starts wiping people out. Four kings means four kingdoms wiped out. That's where Melchizedek comes in. On his way back, it says that the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abram, at the valley of Shavev, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This is in Genesis 14. And he... This is Melchizedek. He was the priest of the Most High God. This is really cool, and I didn't hit this in the first service, but the fact that he's saying, in parentheses, he's the priest of the Most High God, the reason why the, the author of Hebrews is wanting to hit that is really important because they're saying, like, this king is not just some other pagan king. He is the king of the Most High God. They were, there's beliefs of other gods, right? Especially in this ancient Eastern time, they would have believed in a multitude of gods. And he's saying, no, he is the priest of the Most High God, God the Creator, God Father, the God. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him. He said, blessed be, Ab- be Abram by, most, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now this is the king of Sodom talking. He says, but Abram said to the king of, of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you say I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young, young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. So he's, he's taking nothing, but yet he gives a tenth to Melchizedek. So this is, happens there. And this is really key for us to understand this passage in Hebrews today that we see that. So we've been building to this point of the population growing and God has chosen Abram who becomes Abraham, to be his, the pinnacle of it all, like for his people to start. He's the father of many nations, right? Like there's even a song about it and that we sung in Sunday school years ago. And, and so he's it. So then Abram goes, his name's changed to Abraham, and he has his wife Sarah, and they're promised the son. It's not really going the way that he wants it to go. So he decides he's just going to kind of sleep around with his wife's servant and try to have a child that way. It does work out, but that's not God's path. So yet he ends up having a son, a son named Isaac. And, you know, he's told to go and sacrifice Isaac, and he doesn't have to because God provides a ram in the thicket. And there's all these things. So Isaac grows up. His mom's passed away now. Abram is, you know, not, is not with Sarah. She's passed away. And then so Isaac needs to have a wife, and he has a wife, and he has these twins, Esau and Jacob. I joked in the first service with my twins in the service. They did not like this. I said, you know, that you had these two different sons. One's more, like, aggressive, and then one's kind of, like, always scheming. 
to do something. And for those of you who know my sons, if you serve in the student ministry, you can guess which one's always scheming. Anyone know? Yeah. You know, it's Abram. Um, I didn't go that detailed, but they were glaring at me in the second row here. They're like, thanks a lot, Dad, for mentioning us. You know, they'd get, they're teenagers now. So Esau and Jacob, they're born. And they just kind of bicker back and forth. They, they don't get along. Esau decides, I'm so hungry. He's like hangry. He sells his birthright. And Jacob is scheming and he gets, he steals that birthright. And, and then he goes on and he gets married and he marries two sisters. Like this is crazy. He, he marries these two sisters. And from those two sisters and their servants, he ends up with 12 sons. And then there's these grandsons that get brought in too. And from that, that's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. I know this is a lot, but you got to track with me. Otherwise, like this whole text in Hebrews is like, well, why, are you, why is this in here? And we got to have a reference for this. So all this craziness happens, and one of the brothers, Joseph, he gets sold into slavery by his other brothers. They don't like him. They, he's got these dreams that ticks him off, so they sell him into slavery. And he ends up, through a whole bunch of events that we don't have time for, ends up second in command in Egypt. Well, in that, as he's second in command in Egypt, all of Israel is experiencing a famine. Where, where's all the food at? It's in Egypt. So they get to go there, his brothers, to him, not even realizing it's him, and they, he's able to save all of Israel because there's food now, because God strategically placed them there through, a, through a, all these different events. After Joseph dies, though, the people of Israel have grown. These Jewish people have grown in, in Egypt, and they're getting kind of nervous about it, the Egyptians, and so they enslave all of them. So then God calls another man named Moses to lead them all out of Egypt. That's the Exodus, right? And we see all these plagues happen. We see all these things taking place. And they get out into the wilderness through the Red Sea and all that. And while they're there, they don't trust God. They don't believe that he's better. So they're just wandering in the wilderness. A whole generation dies. But while they're there, they get the Ten Commandments. And while they're getting the Ten Commandments, Moses is, the rest of them are down there. And they're making this golden calf. When Moses comes back and he sees this, he's like, what's going on? And he's yelling at Aaron, who that's where the priesthood starts. And the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they step up and they slaughter the people that they're commanded to slaughter because they had a fervor and, and a zeal for God's word and wanted to stand true on that. That's important as well. And so you have all this going on. Moses dies. The, the rest of the people finally enter into the promised land, except for that generation and when they get to the promised land, the 12 tribes get divided up the land, except for the tribe of Levi. This is a big deal. The reason why they didn't get any land is because they are the priest. And they would then receive a tithe, as this text says, from their brothers. Because they don't need to have the land, to farm, and to do. Their job, their responsibility was to be the priest for the people of God to make the sacrifices, to keep all the things running as God has laid out throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. All that's there. There's all these laws, 613 of them. There's standards of dress and, and what they're to wear and how they're supposed to do things, offerings, sacrifices, festivals, and atonement for sin. That was the job of the Levitical priest. When they turned 25, that's what they did. Like if you were a male and you turned 25, you became a priest. If you were in that tribe of Levi, that was it. That was what they did. Some priests were good, some were horrible, but regardless, that lineage of Levi, that's where the tribe, or that's, what, that's where priests came from. So the Levites are given this role, probably because of their zeal to defend God's honor and laws. That's not guaranteed, but that's there, right? And so that's a lot of background. 
a lot of history. And you might be thinking, okay, well, like, that's great. Why do I need to know all that? Well, I want you to have a reference. I want you to understand, like, what we're getting ready to dig into in Hebrews then, just so you have some background. Because it'd be like this. If I, if I told you that 1111 Mississippi over in St. Louis had the best steak, you'd be like, okay. I've never been there. How do I know you tell me the truth? And I'd be like, well, have you ever had Porter's? In the first service, I said, well, I couldn't think of the name of Porter's. And I was like, hey, what's the restaurant over there? Someone said Culver's. I was like, Col- what? Culver's? Oh, I can guarantee you 1111 Mississippi is better than Culver's. Um, but yeah, so if I said that, you're like, okay, well, I don't, I don't know. But if I said, hey, but it's better than 1818 Chop House or it's better than Porter's, you'd be like, oh, I've been to one of those. Maybe you haven't been to one of those. I'm like, hey, it's better than Colton Steakhouse. You're like, okay, I'm tracking with you a little bit, right? Like, I, you got to have a point of reference to understand that something else is better. But the problem with that is it's subjective. Like, I could tell you that some food's better, but you might like another place. It doesn't matter. But the reality that Jesus is better, that's not subjective. It's absolute truth. And for them and for us today, we have to understand who Melchizedek is if we're going to truly understand who Jesus is. And so that's our first point. We have to under, fully understand. We have to understand fully who Melchizedek is if we are going to fully understand who Jesus is. You have to grasp that. You have to get a hold of that. And so I want to walk through who Melchizedek is, and he's a really interesting person because his importance in the Bible is, is huge. He may literally be the most important person in the Old Testament. Person, not, I'm not saying he's more important than God, but human being. Like he may be, because like they're saying he's superior in this text to Abram, and Abram was the patriarch of the faith. He was he was the one that Jesus gave the promise to, and so this is really big in the text here alone, and that we're in today. It just, it kind of says that in verse seven it is beyond dispute that the inferior, that's Abram, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. So he's so important. And why is he of great importance? Well, let's just walk through the text. It says that for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we have this man, Abram, who is the patriarch. He just returned from slaughtering four kings in their kingdoms. He's the one the promise was given to. And this guy, Melchizedek, who's king of Salem, and priest of the Most High God, what that means is it tells us in the text, he is first, this is in verse 2, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's breaking down what his name means. Like There's no other king that can offer that perfectly than Jesus. He's pointing us to Jesus. He wants us to see that Jesus, who's the king of righteousness, is also the king of peace because in his righteousness only can he, Jesus, perfectly then bring us to peace with the God who we've sinned against. Without him doing that in perfect righteousness, we're left without peace, like we're at war with God. Melchizedek is pointing us to that, that that truth. He's pointing these people to that truth. And so we got to keep looking at this and understanding like this is who Jesus is. Not saying that Melchizedek was Jesus, but it's pointing us there. He's a lesser than Jesus, but yet, literally, maybe the greatest person in the Old Testament who very little is written about him. So Jesus, as the only true king of righteousness and peace, brings us to his righteousness. He imparts that, imputes us to, to us, and he brings in that perfect peace between man and God. But there's more about male. It goes on and says that he is without father or mother or genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, resembling, not is, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And so the fact that there is no lineage, okay, that's big. Like, what does it say later in the text? That when he receives these offerings, he wasn't receiving them as the Levites would have because they were told to by God's commands to receive them from the other tribes. He's receiving them, and there was no command for them to do that. But Abram, to honor him because he was superior, gives him the the tenth of everything, of all the spoils. So that's big. And then he's going on that he has no father or mother or genealogy. That's not literal. He's pointing to like there's no record of it. There's no record of of when he was born, of who his dad was, who his mom was, where he came from. And yet he's a king. But yet he didn't need to receive that from some type of, uh, you know, right that he had because he was someone's son. He was placed there by the sovereign God as king of Salem and as high priest. God did this. And I thought about this, too, as I wrote this this week, the sermon. I was like, man, like God orchestrated all of this, this Melchizedek, to become king and to become high priest. And he has no lineage to, like, have a right to step into that. All so that... In my mind, he could use that as an illustration later to point his people to why Jesus is better. Like, I can't think of any other reason why all this would happen. Like, there's not a whole lot about Melchizedek in the Bible. There's Genesis 14, there's Psalm 110, and then we have the book of Hebrews. And outside of that, there's not like a whole bunch of context for him. So God literally has this man be born, place him in these positions without any record of his father or mother or genealogy, no beginning of when he was born, no end of when he died, all because it then would resemble Jesus. Like when you look at Jesus, you're like, well, I know who his mother and father is. It's, you know, it's, it's Mary and Joseph. Yeah, but you can only look back to the lineage on Joseph's side. And all that does is trace you right back to Abraham. You don't have a, a beginning for Jesus. He always has been. Like when God says, let us create man in our image, like that, he's talking to his son. He's talking to the Holy Spirit. Like, he has no beginning. Jesus has no end. He died on that cross, but he rose three days later, and he's still sitting at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us, mediating between us and God, that peace that we so need. Like, he's there. So why does this help us then understand all of this? Like, the king of Salem, which is really saying Jerusalem, that's the hub for God's people. And he has it from no earthly lineage. So he's there in this hub. He's the king before there were kings. Like in Genesis 14, there, was no, there wasn't any other king yet. Like Israel had not been begging for a king because there was not even an Israel yet in Genesis 14. So he's there as this king representing the most high God. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus has always been king. And he's from the tribe of Judah. And he's before all time and he's eternal. So when I unpack that for you and I get you to this point of understanding who Melchizedek is, all that the author wanted them people to see was this, is that he was more superior than your other priest. He's more superior than Abraham. And if that's true, and Jesus is more superior than him, then why are you going to go back to this? Why do you go back to the inferior? And we could ask ourselves the same thing. Like, you'd be like, why do I keep going back to them fear? Why do I keep going to other things that I know is not better? 
that's going to leave me empty. And just for a split second, it feels good. Like, this is going to satisfy me. This is going to give me the confidence that I need. This is going to make me comfortable. This is going to whatever. You fill in the blank. And yet we'll go back to it. And he's writing this to them saying, don't go back to this. Don't. There's a reason why all this stuff happened. And I want to be able to show you that he's, this is not what you want. You want Jesus. And Jesus, he's a priest forever. It says in Psalm 110, like he, this is always, God's been building this out for so long. In 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking of Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus wasn't going to be a priest. He says, you won't, will be a priest. It's not that. He's saying you are a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. Jesus doesn't even come from the line of Levi. Like I already said, he's from the lineage of, of Judah, from the tribe of Judah. And so when he's saying you're in order of Melchizedek, it's because his priesthood never ends. And we have no record of when Melchizedek's priesthood ended. Jesus is there reigning. And next week, and then in chapter 8, when Corey will preach in two weeks, like we'll unpack more of what that means, that we have a high priest whose reign doesn't end, and what he's doing, it's, it's important. Like, it's so important. And, I, like, it blows me away because, like, he's just essentially, just to give you, like, this sneak peek, he's sitting there, and all the lies you believe of yourself, that you tell yourself, all the things that Satan's accusing you of, Jesus is like, that's not who they are. They're righteous. They're mine. I've got them. You gave them to me, Father, like you, you said. They're, they're mine, and no one can snatch them out of your hand because they're mine. And so he's there, like, guarding that, who we are. Like, we can't go and pray. We, can't, we don't have right to sing these songs or stand here with God's word and, and to preach without Jesus sitting there. And he's that priest forever. And there's nothing better. So the existence of Melchizedek and his interaction with Abram is God's sovereign hand saying, let me show you a really clear illustration of why Jesus is better. He's wanting them to see that. So earlier, I, I said that, you know, that Melchizedek is most important, probably the most important person in the Old Testament. And so Jesus then is superior to Mel, Melchizedek, then what we have to ask ourselves is, do we see that? And so I want to ask you today, have you considered the greatness of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Like, have you really, like, considered that? Like, do you ever just sit and think about how great that he really is because that's what the author of Hebrews is asking his original audience is like I know you're struggling I know you're going through a hard time but have you considered the greatness of Jesus and often we don't like we we think that we do but then as soon as something hard comes up we think man if I if I made more money you know then then I would be better off like, that's our go-to. Or, man, if my marriage was better, or if I was married, or if, I'm, or if I was in a different relationship, or, or whatever it is. Like, you just want to fill in the blank. Like, you just want to look for something else, and we don't stop and consider the greatness of Jesus. These people here, they were, they were pretty worn down. They were persecuted. They were beaten. They were feeling defeated. And you're like, well, that's not me. I'm not persecuted. And you're right, we're not persecuted for our faith. Like, very little. Maybe you have some family or friends that maybe mock you a little bit because of your faith and, you know, and maybe make fun of you that you go to heights because we're like a cult, some people want to say, right? No, you guys aren't? Okay, cool, whatever. Like, try and give you a little bit of humor. Um, 
They do say that, by the way. If you haven't had said to you, you will have it said to you eventually. That church is weird. You guys all gather in people's homes. It's like a cult. And we are not building compound here, so it's not. All right? So there you go. There. Now we're laughing. The author wasn't giving all these people this information for just a trip down memory lane of their, like, lineage. He's wanting them to understand that Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, made all the sufferings that they were going through worth it because of what waited them in eternity. And so I say to you right now, like, you can keep trying to chase whatever it is you're chasing to believe that something else is going to be better, but it won't fulfill you. It's going to fail. Like, you can get whatever you want. Like, you can try to live through your kids and think that if they just accomplish these things and they, and they do well in life, like, then I'm going to feel like I accomplished something and I've got it all together. If I, you know, can have a great job or have a certain type of retirement number that I'm aiming for for when I get older, like, I'll be, I'll be set. And it's not there. Like, have you considered that Jesus is greater and stop chasing the things of this world that think that you're going to feel satisfied? Because what happens is, like, here with Abraham, he, he goes and he gives a tenth of the spoils to this guy. He has never even met him before. But he realizes in this moment, because of God working, that he is worth giving a tenth of the spoils to. And as he does this, and, like, and it breaks it down, like, we're, we're seeing that. We've covered it, but I want you to hear, like, he didn't, he had no command from God to do that, yet he honored him because he understood who he was in front of. And then it goes on to say, like, beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Like, do you understand, like, there's nothing else in this world that can bless you. Like, we're blessed by the most superior, by the God most high. That's who blesses us. But yet we'll search for other things to bless us. Do we stop? In the, like, this isn't even God that Abraham's coming in contact with. And he stops in his tracks. He's tired from war. He stops in his tracks and he says, let me give you a tenth of everything and be blessed by you. The one who has received the promise, Abraham. Like he stops and yet we go so hard for so long just running and running and running and doing and chasing all these things and we never stop and consider who Jesus is. And this guy, Abraham, who didn't need, like he could have been like, listen, dude, God done told me who I was a long time ago. I don't know you. I'm going to keep going. But he stops and he considers how great Melchizedek is. And we can't even stop and consider how much Jesus really is for us. This is something that we sometimes just want to give like lip service to at church. Yeah, Jesus is better. He, that's not where it's at. Like, we need to under, truly understand, like, do we see him as superior? Because he's wanting the, this to really sink in to these folks here. Like, he's going so far in verses 9 and 10 to say, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, because the tribe of Levi, that's where the priests come from, so he's receiving tithes, then paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Like, he's driving this point home. That Levi himself, through their, the way their, their things worked in that thousands and thousands of years ago, would have been just the same as paying tithes as Abraham was. He considered the greatness of Jesus. It's beyond dispute, the text says. And so 
as we sit here today, like, I want you to really think about this. Like, this is being written to a group of professing Christians. That's who this was. Like, these weren't, like, people who they were hoping would come to faith. Faith. These people, in the book of Hebrews, this letter is being written to, they were professing Christians. And they were getting ready to go back to this former thing. So that's very much like us today, right? This, in this room, people watching on Facebook or YouTube were professing Christians, for most of us in the room. Maybe there's some people in this room that's not. But regardless, the, the reality would be the same. We keep searching for something that's better. We want something else to fulfill us. And we think that if we find that thing, we're going to be satisfied. Now, for those that were here, that were truly Christians, they couldn't really go back to Judaism. They might dabble in it, but if they were truly saved, they're always saved. Same for you in this room. If, you were, if you've truly placed your faith in Jesus, you, you cannot go back to being not a Christian. It doesn't work. But for those of you in this room who you've just tasted and you've never trusted, for those in this text that are getting written to, for those who have tasted but never trusted in Jesus, there is this reality that because they've never truly trusted in Jesus, they could just stay over there and they tasted of some of the goodness of him, but they never really believed. They didn't see him truly as better. They just understood it kind of in theory. See, I was on Monday, Tim Gray, who you guys have, he took the foundations class or he preached a few weeks ago for Corey and I, he was here and at our staff meeting and I said, hey Tim, can you stick around and, and just help me unpack this text? He thinks outside the box and I, I, re- I like that about Tim. And so we're talking through it, and he gave me this illustration. And he said, you know, like, think about it this way, David. When we're born, he goes, first off, he goes, have you ever been to a water park? I was like, yeah, I've been to a water park. He goes, you know those really tall water slides, like the tube, and it's like a straight shot into the water? I was like, yeah, I know those. I don't, I don't mess with those. I'm almost 40 years old. That's like surefire. I'm not getting out of bed the next day, right? Like, my back's going to be all jacked up. I'm not doing that. And he goes, yeah, so think about this, though. When you're born, it's like you're just shot down one of those things, and you're just plummeting to hell. Like, it's not a pool of water. It's hell waiting for you at the bottom of it. He goes, that's basically what happens, right? We're born into our sin. We're dead in our sins. But then Jesus, he comes along with the cross, and he, like, just places it there, stops you, snatches you off this water slide, and puts you over here in safety with him, protected and good, and you're over there. But then what we do so often is that we, we go looking back over there, and we, we like, oh, that looks fun. That looks really cool. Oh, that's, a, that's a water slide. I don't want to get on it. And you, like, you feel the water splashing you. And the reality is, is as Christians, like I just said, we can't get back on it. Like you don't have a pass to get in that line anymore. It's taken. God's taking care of it. You're, 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 you're over here removed from that, that part. You're no longer dead in your sins. You're with him. But the problem is there's some of us who have seen people taken off of that slide. We've tried to get off, our, off the slide on our own. And then we, just, we look around, we, see, we know that God could, if we just put my trust in him, like he will take me off this water slide. And we're like, no, this is too much fun. I'm going to go right back to it. That's where we're at. That's where we're at sometimes when we don't believe that Jesus is better. I mean, there's people in this church and, and in other churches all across the world that, bel- that have tasted of the goodness of God, but they've never trusted. And so then here's the truth of it, the response then for both the believer and the non-believer in the room is the same. That we all need to repent and believe that Jesus is better. Regardless of where you're at, it could be the first time in your life that you've repented and trusted that Jesus is better. It could be the thousandth time. 
could be the fifth time today for some of us. But it's the same. It's just trust and believe that Jesus is better. Repent that we haven't and then do so. I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. This is texted out to me last night, and I wanted to share it with you. It says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sworn. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. Well, let's track here with me, right? Like where did I say all the tribes of Israel came from? From Jacob. All the clans of the house of Israel, it says. So like all these tribes. This is what he says to them in verse 5. It says, thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Think about that. What wrong has God done? He's not like groveling at their feet like, oh, please come back. He's saying, what, what wrong did your fathers find in me? When did I not do exactly as I said? And so I'm asking you today, like, what wrong have you found in God? When has he not been better? When did he fail us? I'm asking myself the same thing. Please know. I'm like, I'm not pointing the finger at any of us. It's just a collective thing. Like, we have to consider, like, when have we, like, looked at God and been like, you didn't, you didn't come through. You didn't do this. And he has. And so what do we do then? Well, we'll see it in Hebrews 12 in a, in a few weeks. But I'm going to read just Hebrews 12 too to you from like three different versions today because I love the way it says it in different versions. This is the ESV that we normally preach from. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We're that joy. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what do we do then? We look to Jesus. That's how we can know like, that we can just be locked in on him and see him as better. It's like we look to him, but then look, hear how the, this other translation, the NIV, says it. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's like we fix our eyes on him, and every time that we start to think that more money or lust or whatever it is, our kids, like that's going to make us you know, more belongings, more possessions. Like it's going to make us, we just, no, i got to fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to look to Jesus. I can't look at this other stuff. And I know that's easier said than done. I get it. I get it. But yet that's what we have to do. And then look at how the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, puts it. It says, keeping our eyes on Jesus. We just keep looking to him. So I'm like asking you today, have you considered that he is greater? Greater than everything else. And then do you just look to him? Just look to him. Don't, don't let your mind be drifted because like if, you ask your that, if you ask yourself that same question God asked the Israelites, like, when did, when did I fail you? What, what fault did they find, can you find in me? We won't find any. We'll just look to Jesus. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me. We're going to take communion. I'd already said to you guys today that like, the response for the believer or non-believer is the same is to repent and trust that Jesus is better. For some of us, it's going to be the first time. For some of us, it's going to be whatever, 10th, 12th, 1,000th, 5,000th time. But as we come and take communion today, I invite you like, to repent first. Like, Jesus, I have made blank better than you. 
and I'm sorry. Like, I confess that to you, and I need you to make a clean heart in me to help me to fix my eyes upon you, Jesus. And today, if you're going to do that for the first time, just pray and ask him, God, just save me from that stupid water slide just plummeting to death. I, I want to be snatched off of that, and I want to trust that you're better. So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. Let me pray. God, you're good. You're right and perfect. You orchestrated events thousands of years ago, Lord, so that you could show us that your son, Jesus, is better. Better than any mechanism of sacrifice or atoning for sins, Jesus took care of it all perfectly. So Jesus, we thank you that you did not see another path as better, but yet you know obedient, you knew that obedience to your father was the perfect and better path. So God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. God, help us to fix our eyes upon you, Jesus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's worship him and take communion.